Welcome to episode 20 of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin. Remember the time the United States invaded Russia? No? Well, don't worry, you're not alone. Few people know that the two superpowers of the Cold War at one point actually did participate in a so-called hot war. In fact, even Presidents Nixon and Reagan gave speeches in which they wrongly claimed the U.S. and Russia had never been in a direct confrontation. But nothing could be farther from the truth. My guest today is James Carl Nelson, a former staff writer for the Miami Herald who has since written extensively on the American experience in World War I. He joins me from Minnesota via Skype to discuss his latest book, The Polar Bear Expedition, The Heroes of America's Forgotten Invasion of Russia, 1918-1919. In this episode, Jim and I discuss the reasons the Allies thought it necessary to intervene in the Russian Civil War, the experience of the AEF North Russia, or the Polar Bears as they became known, during their nearly year-long campaign in Russia near the Arctic Circle, and what lessons this strange little war has for us living 100 years later. After the show, head over to www.cmtuhistory.com to check out the show notes and extra resources. Now on to my interview with James Carl Nelson. The You Can't Make This Up History Podcast Bringing you strange but true things from the past It's not the average history that you learned in school We're bringing you the heroes and bringing you the fools And stories that are just too crazy to believe The stranger than fiction and super unique James Carl Nelson, welcome to the show. Thank you. How are you today? Good. Good. Uh, well, thank you for coming on. Um, you uh, wrote a very interesting book that we're going to talk about today, The Polar Bear Expedition, The Heroes of America's Forgotten Invasion of Russia, 1918 to 1919. Um, can you start by telling us uh, a little bit about yourself and how you got interested in this uh, somewhat of an unknown topic? Uh, yeah, I was, began working as a journalist uh, in 1983 at the Miami Herald. And so I was a journalist for basically 35 years, but uh, in between there, I, uh, I started writing books. I wanted to do a book about my grandfather's World War I unit. And I did, and it got published in 2009, The Remains of Company D. And uh, then they were like, well, what else you got? So uh, I said, how about this book? I call it Five Lieutenants. I'm like, okay. And then I did another book called I Will Hold about a marine legend, uh, uh, Kate's. Um, and uh, so I had three books, World War One related under my belt. And uh, this one kind of dropped in my lap. Uh, my editor at HarperCollins, Peter Hubbard, sent an email to my agent, Jim Hornfisher, with a link to a WorldWar1.com story about the Siberian end of the intervention, which is a totally different story. It was two regiments sent into Siberia. Um, and said, hey, this is a wild story. What do you think? Is there a book in here? And Jim sent it to me, and I started researching. and. Uh, I just thought that this uh, story of a single regiment in northern Russia was more more cohesive, more coherent to me. And uh, so really it was that that prompted me and I wrote up a proposal and uh, it was accepted and away we went. It, it turned out to be a, an excellent book, a, a fascinating you. story. Um, you really sympathize with the, with the characters that you wrote about and just what they had to endure being up in northern Russia. Um, I guess, can you lay a little groundwork for us um, and explain um, what was Russia's involvement in World War One? Set the stage for us a little bit. Um, my dog's barking. I hope that's okay. <laughs> that's fine. Don't worry about it. Okay. Uh, whenever a dog walks by. Um, <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Well, basically, uh, you know, uh, when the Archduke Ferdinand was assassinated uh, by a Serb a separatist, um, the Austro-Hungarian Empire, with Germany's approval, sought sanctions from Serbia. And uh, Serbia was allied with Russia. Russia was allied with France. So once uh, aggressions were made towards Serbia, Russia mobilized to, to come in and they, uh, they actually invaded Eastern Prussia and were uh, basically destroyed at the Missourian Lakes by the German army. But from there, just like on the Western Front, uh, the front spread, armies lined up against each other. And so since really uh, August 1914, uh, Russia had been holding down uh, millions of German troops on its Western border, on Prussians' Eastern border, and then through the Ukraine. And this was good for the Allies fighting in France because it meant that Germany couldn't release those troops to fight them uh, on the Western Front. But here comes the Russian Revolution of late 1917. Uh, the war was very unpopular in Russia. There was much unrest. People were hungry. Uh, Vladimir Lenin had the, every intent to take Russia out of the war. And he did uh, upon assuming power and actually signed a treaty, the Brest-Litovsk Treaty, in March of 1918. And that allowed Germany to begin transferring uh, 80 divisions to the Western Front to take part in a huge offensive that launched on March 21st, 1918. That, in a nutshell, is what happened. Can you elaborate a, a little bit more on, on what's going on internally in Russia politically, uh, where, where we have this um, communist overthrow of the monarchy there? Yeah, the, the, that touched off uh, the Russian Civil War, which raged until uh, really 1920. Two, I think, um, and there was the the whites, so-called whites, who were the loyal czarists, uh, capitalists, uh, manufacturers, uh, were fighting against the Reds, trying to overthrow this Bolshevik revolution, while the Bolsheviks were trying to hang on to power. Uh, it was throughout the country, and it spread to the uh, Archangel district, where this book takes place in far northern Russia. All right, and so there's there's a decision that seems to go on among the allied powers, the United States being one of them, that they're looking at what's going on in Russia, and we, we need to intervene uh, in these affairs. What What's the motivation behind that decision? The motivation initially was to actually try to recreate that Eastern Front, put people on, the, on that flank of the Germans and Austro-Hungarians, reestablish the front, and either draw out Germans troops back to that front from France or um, to uh, prevent any more from, from leaving for France. So the thought was they could land some men in northern Russia. They would find support among locals who were anti-Bolshevik. Uh, there was this uh, other element. Uh, there was this uh, group of 40,000 to 80,000 former prisoners of the Russians. They were Czechs, had been fighting for the Austro-Hungarian Empire. They were being allowed to leave through Siberia, so there is a huge train caravan of these Czechs, good fighters, heading east. Uh, so there was a thought that maybe we could turn these guys around and they could help us recreate this Eastern Front as well. Beyond that, the British actually had the, the, the higher intent of undoing the revolution. They thought that they could uh, get so much support that they would then march on uh, Moscow and St. Petersburg and pretty much uh, reverse the Bolshevik Revolution. That was pie in the sky as it turned out, but uh, that in a nutshell is uh, what was going on. Now, Britain was behind the plan, the Allied War Council was behind the plan, uh, France was behind it, 
Uh, some Italians were sent, some Poles. But President Woodrow Wilson was not in favor of the plan. He thought that no resources should be taken from the, uh, France on the Western Front. So for months, they tried to pressure him, the Allies, to uh, send men into northern Russia. And it took until July, mid-July of 1918, when he finally acquiesced and uh, agreed to send one single regiment into northern Russia with the sole proviso that they'd be there only to guard stores. There were millions of dollars worth of stores that had been sent from the Allies to, to uh, the Russian army over the course of the war and not to get involved in the Russian Revolution or any local politics at all. Okay, so the American involvement is designed to be pretty limited. Yes, very much. In, in Wilson's mind, anyway, yes, but not in, the, not in the British. The British ran the show, and it was not to be limited in their mind. Okay, and um, just so, so listeners are aware, there, there's kind of three parts to this, correct, where you, where you have what you write about in the Archangel area of northern Russia. There's, a, there's an operation going on in Siberia, and then one going on in the far east of Russia, is that correct? That's the same. I think you're thinking one and the same. Okay. Uh, they, we sent, there were, Jap, Japan had landed something like 7,000 troops in Siberia. Uh, we were wary of that. Um, uh, Wilson also agreed to send two American regiments into Siberia, again, to guard stores, uh, to, to guard the mines, so no one could take the resources from them uh, in the Siberia region. Um, so yeah, it's basically two different operations, uh, and they really had nothing to do with each other other than similar intent. All right, well, you focus um, on, on what's going on in the in northern Russia, and the unit that gets sent there is the 339th Infantry Regiment. Uh, why were they picked to become what becomes known as the American Expeditionary Force North Russia? Uh, there was one re of four regiments in the 85th Division, and uh, it was made up mostly of men from Michigan and Wisconsin. So uh, I, 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 nobody ever spells it out, but it seems like uh, they figured they'd, they'd be pretty well inured to the cold that they knew they were going to face as well. <laughs> it, it's, uh, it's pretty cold there, yeah. Yeah, and its commander, George Stewart, had actually served for several years in uh, uh, Alaska. So he had some experience. Uh, that was the first aspect, just that they would, you know, they were suited for that kind of climate. Number two, they had uh, sailed for England in uh, not shortly after Wilson decided to send a regiment to, to Russia. So they were in England training, uh, thinking they're going to France and available for service in uh, Russia instead. So that's pretty much why they were chosen. All right. And how well equipped and how well manned were they to carry out their, their assigned duty? Uh, they were they were pretty green. It was one of those National Guard divisions. Um, you know, they, there had been uh, it had been in, in existence since the previous fall of 1917. But I mean, there were people, men who were recruits, draftees, who were arriving in Camp uh, Custer in Michigan, you know, like a week before they entrained for New York and then to the New York Harbor and then to England. So they were green, uh, battle inexperienced. Uh, their officers, as usual in, in the AEF, American Expeditionary Force, were mostly college boys or professionals, attorneys. Um, Material-wise, uh, they the, the clothing was pretty good for the time. I have to say, it's not wool. So they, they equipped them with fur parkas, fur mittens. Um, these horrible things they they wore called Shackleton boots. Ernest Shackleton had designed them. The famous Antarctic explorer. But the men hated them. They were like, uh, 
they were like mucklucks, but they had very sh- shiny soles, and so the men slipped around them a lot. Um, Weapon-wise, they had been issued Springfields and Lee Enfields rifles, but they had turned those in and were issued uh, Noisan Magants, which were American-made rifles that had been supplied to the Russian army during the war. Uh, the men had to learn how to shoot them. Uh, they, they complained that the, the aim was so bad it could shoot around a corner. Um, they all had to be recalibrated. Um, so the reason they, they issued them those rifles, though, is because there were millions and millions of rounds of bullets uh, waiting in Archangel that had been shipped to the Russian army uh, for those rifles. So it made sense. Uh, otherwise, uh, artillery-wise, they only later in the fall of 1918, a couple of batteries of Canadian artillerists were sent over. and They were very experienced veterans from the Western Front and actually very fearsome characters. I mean, you hear these uh, innocent Americans talk about them basically almost uh, the atrocities they pulled or just the desecration of dead bodies, looting, you know, this kind of thing. So they're pretty colorful characters. All in all, it's a very colorful show. Um, you know, like I say, there were uh, white Russians who fought with them, Poles, Italians, and French. Um, so it was a, a real colorful operation. Yeah, um, quite a coalition forms, and it's interesting that there's some some Russians who are part of it as well. Right. Yeah. Yeah. There was a there was a legion called the Slavic British Allied Legion. Uh, what they did is. Some of the Americans complained of what they did is they emptied the jails and said, hey, you know, you can stay in jail. You can come fight for this uh, Slavo-British Legion. Uh, nobody ever trusted them, their intentions. They'd flip in a minute uh, later as the, this, this little war went on in the spring of 1919. Uh, they actually turned on their commanders in some instances. Um, so they never really were thought of as great fighters, but there were bodies to be used. And they arrive in... Uh... In Archangel, which I believe is above the Arctic Circle, yes? Well, they had to cross the Arctic Circle. I'd have to look at my handy-dandy map here to make sure if it's uh, actually, let me see here. I think they put it on there. Um, I think it's just below the Arctic Circle, but it's way up there. It's You're talking uh, 600 miles north of Moscow. Um, they sailed around the uh, Kola Peninsula, uh, initially headed for Murmansk. Um, but then they heard that uh, uh, they were needed in Archangel. There was a, uh, a missing group of sailors who had uh, actually been sent to Archangel and were off in the wilderness fighting Bolsheviks themselves under the aegis of the, the British. So they, they thought they were needed to rescue these guys. It was about 50 sailors. Uh, by the time they got there on uh, September 5th, 1918, the 339th Regiment, the sailors had pretty much extricated themselves and saved themselves and came out of the woods the next day. But yeah, they landed uh, September 5th, 1918 at Archangel. And the next day, basically, were pulled off their boats and uh, the 1st Battalion was sent up the, the Davina River, southeast, the river runs north. And then uh, 3rd Battalion was sent straight down the railway line. It was a railway between uh, Archangel and Vologda, about 400 miles south. Um, and they, they, they right away encountered uh, what they called bolos, Bolsheviks. Um, and like the sailors before them, were, were quickly in action against them. All right. So what kind of resistance did the, the bolos put up? The, this is the, the famous Red Army, correct? Yeah. Initially, they were not very well trained themselves. Um, and they were, they were not in, in great numbers. 
Um, but they did have gunboats going up and down the Davina that caused a lot of trouble for the Americans going uh, south that way. Um, but they pretty much were able to kind of push the side initially. But um, over the course of the fall, winter, and spring, uh, their numbers grew to roughly about 40,000 Bolshevik soldiers in that Archangel district and 600,000 in the Red Army in general. Um, and meanwhile, the Allies never numbered more than 11,000 men. So by the time uh, the spring rolled around, they were outnumbered at least four to one. So the fact that they held their own for the better part of a year is, is actually pretty impressive. Yeah, I mean, that's why we call it the, the heroes, because um, what they had to endure. I mean, there were some very bloody battles. Um, in, in March of 1919, the Company M was uh, just west of Obozerskaya down the railway line, and they were attacked. They had a few Allied soldiers with them. They were attacked by 7,000 Bolsheviks and managed to fight them off and actually inflicted 2,000 casualties. Um, so that was a heavy fighting. And uh, in uh, January 19th, 1919, uh, the platoon of Company A from the 1st Battalion was the farthest flung from Archangel, was 250 miles air miles away from Archangel, guarding a post on the Vaga River. And at dawn on that day, these uh, 46 men uh, were attacked by 1,100 Bolsheviks and just put on their heels running for their lives north to try to find some refuge there where they could be safe. And about 25 of those men died. Hey guys, I hope you're enjoying this episode about this forgotten war between the United States and Russia. I want to take a short pause from my conversation with Jim to send out a few thank yous. First, I'd like to thank some of the show's new patrons. Huge, huge thank yous to Amber and Jennifer for joining the show on Patreon. I am so grateful that you are enjoying the programming I do here at the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. And if you have interest in supporting the show... Head over to patreon.com forward slash cmtuhistory, where we have all kinds of extras like bonus content and ways to interact with the show, that kind of thing. Also, a huge thank you to everyone who's been tweeting about the show, both podcasters who do an awesome job of helping me promote the show, and frequent listeners who've decided to follow the show. I'm just astounded we're up to almost 400 followers now, from people all over the United States and Canada, uh, people all over the world. Uh, just today I saw somebody from Slovenia is following the show now, and uh, Germany as well. So thank you to everyone for all the incredible support. If you would like to follow the show on either Twitter or Instagram, you can find it at at CMTU History. And if you have been listening to the show for a while and you enjoy it, um, I humbly ask you consider writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, those are incredibly helpful. Like uh, a lot of independent podcasts, uh, I do nothing to advertise the show, uh, so it's all word of mouth. So those reviews are extraordinarily helpful. So if you could put in a good word, so if you could put in a good word, that would be really great. And as those come in, I look forward to sharing them on future episodes. All right, now let's dive back into the rest of my interview with James Carl Nelson. So since they're moving 250 miles inland, uh, this has become quite a bit more than simply guard stores, right? Yeah, right away. Like I say, the right away they were they were hustled up the river, uh, down the railway line. They also sent a, a, a Company H uh, southwest uh, to guard the Onega River Valley, and I mean they encountered 
uh, quite a few skirmishes on their own. Um, right away, the British had a larger intention, like I say, of pushing all the way to Vologda, all the way uh, to uh, reach out to this Czech legion. They have these very grand ambitions. The, the reality is 250 miles as far as they ever got. Uh, nowhere near uh, what it would have taken to uh, reach out to the, the Czechs or reach Vologda. Now, when I think of combat in World War One, uh, what instantly comes to mind is trench warfare. Um, was were they building trenches uh, in this particular engagement? Yeah, as as winter approached, and you can imagine what winter is like in North Russia. I mean, you're talking 50, 60 below, mm-hmm. uh, feet and feet and feet of snow. Um, they had been trying to push south and southeast. Uh, and the railway line, they got maybe 10, 20 miles past Obozerskaya, uh, maybe 100 miles, 80 miles from uh, Archangel at most, with 300 more to go to Vologda. So um, the initial um, British commander left in October, and it's bizarre, he left to go on vacation in England. <laughs> it's like he's got this huge Allied force. So they replaced him with a new commander who came in, visited the fronts, uh, decided that all operations should cease. We should just hunker down in defensive positions through the winter. And that's what they intended to do. So, yeah, uh, as far as I, it wasn't like uh, Western front trenches. I mean, the, the ground became much too cold for that, for one thing. But they spread a lot of wire. Uh, they built a uh, uh, log, uh, yeah, what you would call it, little cabins where they could shoot machine guns from. Uh, so they established what perimeters they could uh, fields of fire and uh, hunkered down for, I, they thought, the men thought, okay, it's winter. It's not that it would be like the Civil War. All operations cease and we'll pick it up in the spring. That's when the war really began because that's when the Bolsheviks just hopped on their skis and put on their white parkas and started getting very aggressive and attacking uh, the Allied force. So it sounds like the Russians were much more uh, adept to this climate than. Uh, yeah. Than these yeah, guys but, who even coming from Wisconsin and Michigan, they, they weren't prepared for. Yeah, but you know, one interesting thing is you don't hear these men in uh, their numerous diaries, letters uh, at the Bentley Historical uh, Library in, in Ann Arbor, Michigan. They don't complain about the cold very much. I mean, they're used to it. It's not like, oh, you know, it's not the cold that's bothering them. It's everything else. The lack of rations, they can't get cigarettes, the food sucks. I mean, uh, the, their accommodations. In many instances, they they would like take the, the first floor of a, a peasant hut and the family would live upstairs. So more than trenches, that was really the usual accommodations. Um, the, the, the homes were uh, ridden with bed bugs and lice. Um, and just as it dragged on into the fall, I know there was a coming question about Armistice Day. Um, once Armistice, the Armistice was signed uh, November 11th, 1918, in France, and uh, word got back uh, to these guys uh, on the front, reached Archangel, and then men going to and fro their units uh, would carry the news. Uh, that's when uh, the major turn in morale and the question of what are we still doing here arose. And ironically, and maybe coincidentally, uh, Company B at Tulgas on the Davina River, just isolated outpost, was attacked by hundreds of Bolsheviks on November 11th. Uh, which really kicked off the heavy fighting that was going to come through the winter. They managed to fight them off for about three days, uh, retrenched and strengthened their perimeter and held on until March uh, through all these encroachments by the Bolsheviks throughout the winter. 
Yeah, so, so they get the news. Uh, like you said, uh, armistice has been signed. The, the, the Great War is over, and, and they know that their counterparts elsewhere in Europe get to go home, but they're still there. So, so how does that affect morale? How do they react to that news? Well, another reason to call them heroes is because most of them, the vast majority of, of Americans anyway, kept a stiff upper lip, um, though there were a couple instances of sort of mutiny company. I had a small kerfuffle when a, a couple guys were supposed to go down the railway front, and this, this was in late March, and they refused. They refused to help load sleds for the journey or anything like that, and they had to be called out the whole company and read the Articles of War, read the Riot Act. And then at Tulgas, it was in February, uh, there was a Corporal Silver Parish. Uh, his platoon decided that they weren't going to go out and patrol or, or do anything until somebody came along and told them why they were there. <laughs> so they actually signed, they had a petition going around. Uh, and he's very funny. If you read his diaries, he talks about how uh, we're the Bolo platoon. My guys are Bolos. You know, they were they were sympathizers with uh, the Bolsheviks at that point. But that was the over overriding question and the overriding mental aspect they had to overcome was just this feeling of, you know, why are we here? Why won't anybody tell us what this is about? And, and does that ever get properly explained to them? No, nobody ever got a good answer. Uh, there's three or four guys who after this, you call it a war, call it a whatever it was, intervention, wrote books about it. Um, and John Cudahy wrote one from uh, Company B, and Joel Moore and Harry Mead, east from uh, the the 3rd and 1st Battalions, just wrote like a history of the expedition. Um, nobody never, especially past the armistice, nobody ever came and explained why they were continuing to hold on um, in the, the, this desolate region of uh, northern Russia. And so even after, veterans uh, veterans from that operation were still wrestling with that question of why exactly they were there. Yeah, really for the rest of their lives, because it just didn't make any sense. It didn't really make a whole lot of sense in the first place. I mean, theoretically, I suppose you could say it was connected to the war effort if they could have, you know, yeah, reestablished the Eastern Front and kept or pinned down Germans or drawn more Germans back, helped the Western Front I mean, you can understand that in a way, but you're not going to do that by sending, you know, 5,000 Americans and a few thousand British into action. It would have taken a huge force. And actually, towards the end of their stay, Winston Churchill was pushing uh, for a million men to be sent into northern Russia. But, you know, he was just ignored. I mean, my God, all the the losses of World War I, four years of fighting, uh, nobody wanted any, any more war. Yeah, I can't imagine anybody would have been on board for that. No, no. So, and, so uh, oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, finally, I think Woodrow Wilson. Uh, there, there was some fomenting going on in the United States from the families and friends of these guys who were in Russia. They were getting getting letters from these guys. Uh, it was covered by a newspaper correspondent, wire services. Uh, they were aware that they were over there, and uh, I think Wilson finally realized that his men were being misused, not not the intent that he had had in the first place at all. And he finally, in mid-February, when it, when it was too late to really get him out, but he said, okay, I want these guys out of there by the spring, by June, whenever the White Sea at the Archangel is open. And so was that the, the final circumstance of American withdrawal out of uh, Russia once Wilson uh, had finally 
not seen any progress in this? Um, no, uh, actually, um, the men went back uh, in uh, through June, and uh, I think the first ones reached Detroit on July third, nineteen nineteen, at a big parade downtown uh, the next day, uh, and then they formed the the Polar Bear Association. Um, just because it had been such a bizarre episode in their lives, bizarre fighting experience. And they wanted to honor the sacrifice of the 235 men who died. And uh, they managed to bring about 110 bodies back with them on the ships that came back to the U.S. So there were still well more than 100 bodies strewn across Russia. And by 1929, they uh, had uh, gained some funds. Uh, State legislature of Michigan gave them some money, some federal money. Uh, so the contingent went back into Russia. The Russians allowed them in, and they went to their former battleground sites where they'd been located, and they managed to locate and uh, exhume 86 bodies of their fallen comrades and bring them back to America. And uh, 56 of them were brought ultimately to uh, Detroit. There's a cemetery at Troy, Michigan, a suburb uh, called the Whitechapel uh, Cemetery. And they also commissioned a huge marble polar bear uh, as our marker for uh, for their effort and sacrifice. And today, I was there last September. It was a, I did a little talk on the 100th anniversary of the landing in Detroit. And uh, I went to that cemetery and the, that marker, the polar bear, and there's 56 graves uh, laid out around that. It's quite a moving place. And it's funny because I recognize a lot of the names from my book. So... Oh, wow. Yeah, I'm sure that was a particularly powerful experience being mm -hmm. deep in this research. Mm -hmm. um, are there still American war dead over in Russia? Yeah, there are about 25. I uh, don't know the exact number. Um, it's funny, I was in France uh, in uh, September, and we went to their cemetery of Romaine in the Argonne, and they have a wall of the missing. And I was really shocked. They have uh, on the wall of the missing are the names of these like 24, 25 members of the polar bears who are still are missing. And uh, I recognize a lot of their names, too. It was I, it was really interesting. Somebody knew I was doing this book and pointed it out to me. I was like, wow, that's awesome. So there's actually some guy contacted me uh, not too long ago. He knew I was doing this book and uh, he's got some kind of museum going. He's got some kind of effort underway to try to locate as many of these guys' bodies as he can and bring them back. It's, uh, he's been in contact with me. I don't really know what's going on. Oh, very cool, very cool. Yeah. Um, so why, why have we largely forgotten about this war? I, I didn't really know anything about it um, in, in, until I saw your book. I, um, you know, even in learning about World War One in, in a college class, this doesn't get mentioned at all. Um, why have we forgotten this mini-war? Uh, I didn't really know about it either, I'll be honest. And, and everybody I talked to had no idea. Now, it was funny, Peter Hubbard and I, when we were first talking about the book, we were discussing whether we could get away with calling it the invasion of Russia, what it was such a great word, and it really was. You know, And I said, you know, if you, if you send troops into another person's country and they establish take ground and hold it, I, I'd call that an invasion. So uh, that was just a good word, but I, I'd never really heard of it. Um, I think what happened was it was just sort of an epic uh, mistake um, and it was sort of uh, swept under the carpet, um, not locally in Michigan or among the relatives and friends of these guys or the Polar Bear Association, but 
largely uh, in the United States it just faded out of memory. Uh, as is, you know, I'm doing my fifth book on World War One, American experience in World War One right now, and there's a lot that's not known about World War One. You know, I happen to be interested because my grandfather was fought and uh, was wounded in World War One. But otherwise, I don't think the average person knows a whole lot about World War One anyway, except for uh, you know Western Front, Sergeant York, mm-hmm. something like that. Yeah, yeah it, it, World War Two really overshadows it. Unfortunately, oh, there's no question. Just look at the books that come out. So, but but I mean, I know a lot of guys are writing World War One history now. So it's kind of come back since I did my first book, and uh, I, I know I find it a fascinating. Uh, era and, and and it's nice to work on too because you don't have to worry about copyright laws because now you can use anything before 1923 <laughs> oh it's all public it. domain yes public domain <laughs> and uh yeah it's uh i don't know it just kind of sort of became my bailiwick my next book is also about american experience in world war one so uh, it's uh, i just enjoy doing it it's a really interesting period, and it's um, yeah something that's sparked. My, maybe it's the centennial that we've had the last four yeah, years. Yeah, that, so. that helped last year. Yeah, that helped, and then it's the centennial now of these polar bears. Mm-hmm. So, uh, actually, it's, oh god, tomorrow would be the hundredth anniversary of when the first I think it was company. I can't remember which company it was. Maybe Company A came back to Detroit. So that's a hundredth anniversary. It's good timing. Oh, oh, so our episode is is quite timely then. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And we wanted to get it out. We could, it was published in February. Uh, we wanted to get it out for the hundredth anniversary of, of the, uh, the the war. So that worked out pretty well. I guess, I guess the last thing I'll ask you is: Are there any lessons to be learned from our experience in Russia a hundred years ago? Yeah, and I would say, you know, there were the same lessons maybe to be learned uh, from our invasion of Iraq. Um, if you're going to do it, you know, make sure you know why you're, you're going to do it, what the mission is, stick to the mission, and send enough resources to get it done right. I mean, they had to do those, what do they call them, bumps or whatever in Iraq a couple times, infusions of more troops and more troops. Um, and, uh, you know, I think that's one of the, the best uh, parallels. Also, Vietnam is a great parallel. Um, you know, the, uh, the book and movie, uh, we were soldiers once when they send an air cav regiment to the base of a mountain in the middle of nowhere so that they can draw out the North Vietnamese and kill them. That was their only mission. And they wound up getting wiped out themselves. Um, this, this is kind of the polar bear expedition kind of reminds me of that whenever I see that movie again. Because um, that's kind of what they did. They were sent 250 miles from Archangel and just waited for the Bolsheviks to attack. Um, but that would be it. You know, things are always, Iran's going on right now. I mean, you know, think long and hard. And I know people are, I hope most people are, before you, you know, have any ideas that you're going to go invade somebody again. Yeah, I I felt similar parallels in reading the book to to Vietnam and Iraq, where where you don't have these clearly defined objectives, and you're kind of parking yourself there in in a defensive posture and just yeah. trying to endure um, these guerrillas attacking you. Yeah, maybe Afghanistan too, in a way. I mean, I can understand why they're there a little more, just to try to suppress you know the terrorist uh, gathering and training or whatever. But uh, it's just uh, I think this was. You know, Wilson thought long and hard about this, sending troops in there. Uh, I think he regretted it right away. He said before he did send them, he said, you know, I think it's going to be harder to get out than it is to get in. And that was certainly true 
in uh, Vietnam and uh, in Iraq. That went on forever, too. It's still going on. It's not over, you know. All right. Well, this has been a fantastic discussion. Uh, very interesting. If someone wants to learn more, um, you have a lot of great detail in the book, firsthand accounts from sol- from some of the polar bears. Uh, if someone wants to read in more detail, where can they find the book and where can they learn a little more about you and your work? Uh, you can find the book everywhere. Um, you know, Amazon, Barnes and Nobles, just all sorts of uh, economists. They put it in Walmart. And I'm in Costco, finally. <laughs> that was just, just great. It's great to be in Costco. You made it when you get in the Costco. Yeah, that's about it. Although they don't have it at my local Costco. I don't know why. I kept checking. Um, you know, uh, all my books are available on Amazon, barnesandnobles.com. Uh, it's the Remains of Company D, Five Lieutenants, and I Will Hold. This is the Polar Bear Expedition. And my next book is The York Patrol, speaking of York. And if you want to learn more about the polar bears, specifically, uh, like I mentioned, the Bentley Historical Library in Ann Arbor, Michigan, has uh, is devoted as a section devoted to them. They've been collecting uh, memoirs, diaries, all sorts of memorabilia, photographs uh, devoted to the polar bears for a long time. And I used that. That was the best resource I had. All right. Well, thank you very much, Jim. I appreciate this. Thanks. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Can't Make This Up History Podcast. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with James Carl Nelson. If you are interested in learning more about his book, The Polar Bear Expedition, The Heroes of America's Forgotten Invasion of Russia in 1918-1919, you will find a link in the description down below on your podcast app. Alright, that's it for me. Thank you for tuning in for another episode. I look forward to seeing you all back here in three weeks on July 30th.